This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello, everyone. Hope you're all doing okay. Well, February is nearly over. Glad that's almost done with. Up here in northern New England, we're just coming out of yet another five-day span of temperatures in the single digits. And now we're being told to prepare for an ice storm. I can't wait for spring to get here. Please hurry. Anyway, I've got 50 plastic pots filled with soil and native seeds sitting outside in the freezing cold, covered with window screens. And I've got two dozen one-gallon milk jugs filled with soil and native seeds out there, too. It will be interesting to see which setup produces more seedlings come springtime. We have a special show for you today. This episode is entirely devoted to our interview with a special guest. It seems like lately, all we hear about are problems. Wildfires, drought, desertification, floods, loss of habitat, and biodiversity, the list goes on and on. That's why I wanted to interview award-winning journalist Judith D. Schwartz. Judith has written three phenomenal life-changing books about restoring the planet's ecosystems. Each book shines a positive light on individuals and groups of people across the globe who are working to prevent and even reverse the destructive effects of climate change. Her first book, Cows Save the Planet, demonstrates the pivotal role healthy soil plays in the ecology of our planet and what each of us can do to help restore soil fertility. In her second book, Water in Plain Sight, Judith describes how farms and wild areas are being restored by working with water's natural cycles. The book outlines how capturing and retaining rainwater where it falls can break the vicious cycle of flooding and drought. Her brand new book is The Reindeer Chronicles and other inspiring stories of working with nature to heal the earth. This book takes the reader on a tour of some of the earth's worst areas of environmental damage and shows how determined people and communities are coming together to successfully heal these wounded places. And this is the book we're going to talk about today. Today's show is part one. I hope you will also join us on the next episode for part two of our discussion. Judith Schwartz, I'd like to welcome you to Bird Hugger. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you on the show. I have so many questions, especially about your latest book, The Reindeer Chronicles. I was just very taken with the stories you told. The book seems to be a series of stories about how people are coming together to heal the land. And I know you had someone in your book saying something to the effect of the earth can heal if it's given the opportunity. Could you address that a little bit, maybe? Absolutely. So one of my motivations for this book is the fact that so much of the news that we hear about the environment is negative. And so 
it isn't even in our consciousness, the notion that we can improve situations. But the thing to understand is that nature wants to heal, that there are evolutionary processes in nature in which you're gaining in biodiversity, more lushness, more plants, more life, more birds, more bees, all of this. And that when we understand how nature works, we can ally with that logic because there is a logic to it and help to restore our ecosystems. So I think that often there's the sense that landscapes are static unless something terrible happens and they get worse. But bringing to the fore the notion that we can heal even the earth's most wounded places, I just think it's important for us to understand that it's possible because if we don't have that in our conversations and our understanding of the world, how can we work towards it? And we all know that this is what the world needs. Right. I think a great example in your book is the uh, Less Plateau Watershed Rehabilitation Project. Could you tell our listeners about that? Yeah. So that project is really remarkable because of its size. Okay. So here's the story. The Los Plateau in China is a huge, huge region. It's about the size of France. And this is where agriculture was born in China, actually around the same time that agriculture began in the Fertile Crescent about 10,000 years ago. So this was the breadbasket of China. This was what allowed so many ancient civilizations to flourish. And over time, the landscape began to degrade. One reason is that the particular kind of soil is low soil. Actually, we have low soil in Iowa. You know, we know that Iowa has incredibly or had incredibly rich soil. It's very high nutrient, high mineral, but has a kind of, I don't want to say dusty quality, but a real granular quality that if it's not stewarded properly, it turns to dust. So, over these thousands of years, the soil was degrading in the Los Plateau. And so there was erosion and people were managing or actually not managing their livestock so that animals, goats and sheep were just wandering around at will, which led to overgrazing and likely undergrazing some areas. So the place was kind of becoming an ecological disaster. And one of the big problems was that all of that soil was silting up the Yellow River. So the Chinese government in the late 1980s said, we have a problem here. And there were millions of people in dire poverty, living in caves, and you know it was kind of not a great situation for anybody. And so the government said, so we could either keep dredging the Yellow River and addressing this problem and giving people state aid so that they could survive? Or how about if we fix the underlying problem, which is the degradation of the landscape? So they gathered hydrologists and geologists and biologists and economists. There are always a lot of economists involved. And they put together a huge multifaceted plan that they implemented in the beginning of the 1990s. So there were really some unique things about this. One is that because of the scale of it, 
they were engaging with people living in these small villages and they actually hired people to do the work. So everybody had a part in it. So it was this huge undertaking across a large area with millions of villagers helping to work on the restoration. And the restoration itself was not complicated. It involved plantings. It involved slowing down the water in many ways with earthworks and by building terraces, terracing the landscape so that the water would flow more when it rained rather than cause erosion because the soil was depleted and lacked plant cover, but that the the water would stay longer in the landscape and move more slowly. And that created the opportunity for more plantings. And another big thing that they did was they removed the livestock from vulnerable areas so that when you look at films, you would see that in the early going, you would have a goat wandering up a entirely bare hillside, nibbling at the last bit of vegetation that you could see. So so to give the plants a chance to, to grow and for the underlying ecological system in the soil to rebuild, they remove the animals. And an area the size of Belgium, you know, they focused on one part of the Los Plateau, was brought back to ecological function. Actually, that sounds like really cold language. Basically, it became a flourishing, green, biodiverse landscape. And we are so lucky that we actually can watch that transformation because a filmmaker named John D. Liu, a Chinese-American filmmaker who had been a journalist, cameraman, producer, became involved with this documenting the project for the World Bank, which was one of the funders of this restoration. And so John has done these fabulous films interviewing people whose lives were transformed and showing how even this incredibly depleted landscape can be lush and functional and biodiverse again. I know in your book, you say it's embarrassingly simple and embarrassingly inexpensive. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that observation is from a quote by permaculture, one of the founders of permaculture, Bill Mollison, who says that as the problems of the world grow increasingly complex, the solutions remain embarrassingly simple. And that's something that guides me sometimes, like all of us, I feel overwhelmed. Oh my goodness, how are we going to deal with all this? But when you start to really look at our ecological challenges, ecological, social, and economic challenges, actually, we can bring all of that into the picture, that Once you start to solve one challenge, then the other challenges become more solvable because the root causes of so many of our challenges are the same. And in the case of the Los Plateau, when you say embarrassingly inexpensive, I think it was something like $17 per acre per year that was the investment in the project. And now when you think about the millions and billions of dollars spent to try to solve problems, and when we get nowhere, once we can really get to the root of challenges and with the 
ecological challenges is really simple. It has a lot to do with slowing down the water, creating the conditions for greater biodiversity, more biomass, you know, more life and more soil organic matter. Once you do that, you have gone a really long way, not only to solving your problems, but also allying with the underlying evolutionary trends that nature wants to fulfill. Now, you talk quite a bit about desertification in the book. I know when I was in fourth and fifth grade and and taking my science class, deserts were presented to us as students as naturally occurring ecosystems. So that's changing now, right? That approach is shifting to perhaps deserts are human caused. Yes, and it is a really, really interesting shift because I agree when you look at the world map that there are these places that are deserts, but it's important to understand that not all of these regions that we call deserts are true natural deserts. Many of them in different times during history were very productive ecosystems. So it's important to understand the processes that led to these lands becoming deserts, which actually, I mean, I think it's a combination. We're learning a lot. Some of it actually has to do with the tilting of the earth, <laughs> but some a lot of it has to do with what we have done to the landscapes. So since we can understand some of those processes, we can also understand how to reverse those processes. And we have seen places that are considered desert come back and be more productive and lush. So one area, so the Sahara Desert, there was a period of time several thousand years ago that is described as the Green Sahara, where there were hippos in this area. So we have to understand that our landscapes are always changing and see that that understanding gives us at least the potential for some agency. Then we can really look at how we can restore ecological function. So we know that the Sahara Desert is expanding, but we don't have to let that happen. And There are areas of the Sahel Desert. The Sahel is an area in Africa that's kind of, yeah, you can see where it's like marginal landscape and you can see where it can tilt towards deserts. But there are a lot of projects going on. For example, the Great Green Wall, a large reforesting project that people are hoping will help sustain the ecology and restore the ecology in this area. I was shocked to read in your book that at one point, Libya and Yemen were lush green forested areas until the Roman Empire came through and overgrazed, overplanted. So we know that there are certain things that happen that people do that lead us towards the condition of desert. And that is, okay, so if you look at how societies develop, it starts with settled agriculture, okay? Because when people are not settled, that's a different kind of culture, a mobile culture where you're not, a nomadic culture where you're not 
building cities and, and institutions and all of that. So what happens is that people start to farm near the rivers, where rivers bring nutrients from other areas. And so the soil is very, very fertile. So people start to farm those areas. And what happens is that as you farm and then, and then because there's water, they start to spread out a little and then they bring water. So they have irrigation and irrigation is at once a tremendous boon to cultures to populations to help the production of food. But after a while, irrigation leads to very saline, heavy mineralized land. And so that gets not very useful for agriculture. So people spread out and they start to go on the hillsides. And when they go on the hillsides, they remove the trees and then the land is at risk for erosion because the trees were playing a really big role in holding the soil in place. And then when you lose the trees, you start to lose the function of the water cycle. And then you have animals on the hillside and that exacerbates the destruction of the vegetation. So this is what happens. And over time, what you get are deserts. And I know you said in your book that one third of the Earth's landmass is either desertified or heading that way, correct? Right. So, so the word desertification, when it means making deserts, it means the loss of function of the land, the loss of that land's capacity to sustain life. And so in the book, I tell the story of an area in really serious desert conditions in Western Saudi Arabia, where there's this experiment, an ongoing experiment to revive the ecology in this particular area, the results of which have been so extraordinary that it really challenges our understanding of what is a desert. So I can leap into that story if that's Sure, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. So this is the Al-Beda project in Western Saudi Arabia. So the story is that there's a fellow named Neil Spackman, an American who had studied Arabic in college. And so word got around, his language skills became known to some people who were putting together a project to address poverty among the Bedouin population in Western Saudi Arabia. So he became involved with this and he wanted to bring an ecological component to this. And they said, the people running the project said, okay, that sounds great. So they they got a hundred acre or so demonstration site. Now, Neil also, he did a kind of casual research speaking to people in the Bedouin community and learned that the area wasn't always as desert-like as it was now. He talked to people who were over, let's say, 50 or 60, and they said that when they were children, there were places where they went to where there was always water throughout the year and that there were always plenty of trees. But what happened was the land ownership regime changed. And so the Bedouin, the land degraded because the Bedouin were settled. They were no longer moving across the landscape with their animals. And the kingdom decreed that land would be either 
privately owned or owned by the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And what that meant was that people bought land and so it was privatized so that the Bedouin didn't have access to it. And it created a situation where the Bedouin were not able to move with their animals and in order to live with their animals, which was such a part of their culture, they were cutting down trees to sell as firewood And because they didn't have good land, they were buying feed for their animals from Australia or something crazy like this. So this was the situation that Neil walked into. But what he did was he and his team made an effort. Their first effort was to slow down the water because when it does rain, even though that might not happen even every year, there's a lot of water that can be captured. So right now, or when they began, when it rained, it flooded. And the water was not only not of any use ecologically, but it was actually destructive ecologically. So they went to work, they built lots of small earthen dams, different kinds of earthworks that slowed down the water. And then when it rained, they would hold onto the water and rush to plant. So they went through many cycles of rains and they built an ecosystem. They were seeing more biodiversity. Just as an example, they saw that for the first time there were ants in the soil. There were more birds. There were more bats. There were more mushrooms that in the beginning when it rained, there was one kind of mushroom but then they started to see several kinds of mushrooms. So they were building a new ecological scenario and they were planting trees. But an important factor is that they never overdrew their water budget. They never went into fossil water. They only used as much water as they could capture. Now, the extraordinary part of this story is that after doing this for several years and they had many trees that were growing and everything was looking really, really good and the project lost its funding. So they could no longer do the irrigation piece. So they turned off the irrigation and Neil's response was, oh, well, I guess the permaculture ideal is to create a self-sustaining ecological system And they just had no choice but just to wait and see what happened. Well, what happened was after three years or so, including long stretches without any rain, 80% of the trees survived, which is really extraordinary. So you look at photos and there's some wonderful photos. I really encourage people to look at the video about the Albeda project. And you see photos where you would not look at this and think this was a desert. And the importance of this is knowing that it's possible and that this can be replicated elsewhere. It's a lot of work, but it can be done. Yeah, that is amazing. Could you touch a moment up and talk about Michael Kraczewik from Slovakia and his theory about small water systems? Could you tell our listeners why it's so important to slow water down and how not doing that contributes to this sort of, you know, flooding drought, flooding drought, flooding drought cycle? 
Right, right. So there's a group of Eastern European hydrologists and botanists that wrote this incredible document called Water for the Recovery of the Climate, the New Water Paradigm. And where they see where we can make the most difference is restoring the small water cycle. So there's a large water cycle where you have the movement of moisture from the oceans coming over land. And then there's the small water cycle, which is really water in place. And the important thing for ecological function is to keep water as close to where it falls as possible. And what Michael Krofschick talks about is how we have designed our cities, how we've designed human habitat. And that is that we have seen water falling where we live as a nuisance. So we have built these areas with lots of impervious surfaces. So we're sluicing water away and the water then is not taken up locally. It is being moved off site. So all of those areas are not getting the benefit of the water. So what happens is where it flows, it floods often. And what is really important and what we can do more with is to ensure that we have places for the water to slow down and to be captured. The other really important piece about the small water cycle is the extent to which that actually moderates temperature. So I like to think about water processes. You know, often when we talk about water, it's that water is sort of like a noun rather than a verb. Like we have water here, we don't have water here, as opposed to how water is moving both through the landscape and through the atmosphere. So if we look at water processes, including transpiration and condensation, that's how we get rain. Transpiration is often forgotten. Transpiration is the upward movement of water through plants. And what's really, really important is that that is a cooling mechanism because it takes energy to turn the liquid water, water in its liquid form, of you know the water that has been soaked into the soil and then what the plants are drawing on to pull up and then release as moisture. So that is a cooling process. So a parallel to that is boiling water. We know that it takes energy to turn liquid water into water vapor. So wherever we have plants, those plants are doing the work of cooling And that is part of the small water cycle, water falling onto the ground, infiltrating into the ground. And that's where we need to focus on keeping water where it falls, because to do that, well, anyway, so falling into the ground, rising through transpiration, and then ultimately falling back down as rain. And, And Krofchik and others talk about how we have really disrupted the small water cycle. And that is where we are suffering from floods, droughts, and stormwater problems. Yeah, I think, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like in New England, we've reached a tipping point. We had a horrible drought this past summer. 
And I think it's because we have so much impervious surface. You know, when I see a neighbor paving their dirt driveway with asphalt, you know, I just want to cry because it's just another impervious surface that's going to push that water towards the sewer and away from our local landscape. Right. So, so partly it's the man-made impervious surface, well, I guess, but also depleted soil, which is another kind of man-made impervious surface because when you have soil that doesn't have life in it, that's lacking in organic matter, then the water is just going to run off that soil and that adds to the problem. So, you know, thinking about, I live in Vermont, thinking about Hurricane Irene, I often wonder if we had been able to hold more of that water in the landscape, might there have been less damage? And I imagine that there would have been less damage. So our agricultural land is also a big part of the picture. Could you talk about trees and precipitation nuclei? Sure, sure. So we are learning more and more that trees actually help create the rain. So in an environment like a rainforest, that's a very small water cycle. So you can actually almost see the moisture moving from the plants to the, to the rain, you know, that these plants are creating their own rain through the transpiration condensation cycle. But there is another way that trees create rain and actually other plants as well. And that is because the trees are emitting nuclei that moisture condenses around and then the rain falls as rain. So many, many plants are involved in this process of creating transpiration and and creating precipitation. So there are lots of just different organic molecules. One scientist that I talked to calls it fairy dust or the scents of the forest. And so biology is really an important part of the creation of rain. That it's not just anything. Rain rain needs something to condense around. And as it turns out, the particles from eroding soil, those particles are too small. And the same with pollution. Whereas the microbes that different plants send up into the atmosphere, they function as precipitation nuclei. Right. Now, you also mentioned in the book that clouds prefer native vegetation. Can you explain to our listeners why that is? Yeah, so that's a really interesting set of research. So in Australia, there was a big problem of imported mammals like rabbits. So they created this 3,000 kilometer rabbit-proof fence throughout Western Australia, the province of Western Australia. This was in the early 1900s. So as it turned out, the fence was not terribly helpful in deterring rabbits or rodents. However, it created an opportunity 
to see what happens in different kinds of landscapes. So the fence divided agricultural land from land that was not developed, land that had native vegetation. And scientists saw that actually the native vegetation saw more cloud cover and saw more rain than the wheat belt, the areas where they cleared the land of trees and they planted wheat, which actually isn't native to Australia. So that really tells us that our vegetation has more wisdom than we had given it credit for, that our vegetation is so integral to our ecosystems, to our landscapes. We know that native vegetation is essential for native pollinators, native insects, and native birds, but also for the production of rain and the creation of clouds. So I imagine a few things our listeners could do if they really wanted to help would be A, grow native plants and native trees on their property and try to avoid impervious surfaces like having their driveway covered in asphalt. Are there any other ideas you can offer the listeners about what they can do locally? Well, they can have rain gardens because that keeps the rain where it falls. And because we are seeing more drought periods, we can have rain barrels so that we can capture the rain so that we don't have to do as much irrigation. I don't think that we have as much of a problem with water quality as a place where they've been for decades or hundreds of years doing irrigation. But I I do think that that is something to keep in mind, that the water that we use for our plants, it's best if it's rainwater, because If we have town water, that water is treated. That's not water in the same state that it is when it falls as rain. So I think we can trust that nature in sending down rain is sending down what we need for our plants. Yeah, it's really interesting about about the native vegetation. I've been learning more. I just took a permaculture design course myself and one person who had taken the same course previously, this course that I took, it's through Sewing Solutions in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, which is only a little more than an hour for me in Southwestern Vermont. One of the people that had taken the course actually now has created a business of consulting on native vegetation for native bees, understanding just the very intimate relationship that pollinators, that insects and birds have with specific vegetation, that there are some insects that really depend on particular plants to thrive. So it's important that we do that. And one thing that I found really interesting in the beginning of taking this permaculture design course, because I am planning on actually implementing some of this on on the land where I live. I live on 12 acres on a mountain in Vermont that 
I looked at this catalog that had all of these really exotic berries that were from different parts of the world. And some of them are really interestingly shaped. And in the beginning of the course, when I looked at this, I thought, oh my gosh, that would be so cool to have this plant from Siberia or this place in Central Asia. And wow, look at it so pretty. And nobody else will have this fruit. (laughs) And just last week, because I'm planning on consulting with my teacher, Kay Cafaso, I was looking at that same catalog and I had a visceral like sense of no, like a visceral almost revulsion (laughs) to the thought of having this kind of fruit. It's called honeyberry. And it's like a it supposedly tastes like a blueberry, but they're they're long fruit. Isn't that kind of crazy that I had this almost sense of revulsion of putting that on my land? The truth is, I don't know. Maybe the birds here would like that particular plant when it flowers. I don't know. But I just figure that some intuition is telling me something and that I can stick with with native plants, make that a, a real a real commitment to my land, that that is what I will bring to it. I'd like to thank Judith D. Schwartz for joining us today. Her new book, The Reindeer Chronicles, a publication of Chelsea Green Press, can be found on Amazon.com, the Barnes & Noble website, and in your local bookstores. To find out more about Judith and her books, you can go to her website at judithdschwartz.com. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode to hear part two of our discussion of the Reindeer Chronicles. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.